Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And he chose them to be a light to all nations, his ambassadors to the world. And by the way, at this time in history, in this present dispensation, that's our mission. Is he done with Israel? Romans says not. Revelation says not. Jesus says not. James says not. No, God has still got a plan for Israel. He promised, by the way, to regather them to the land. Today we have part two of Pastor Sam's message, Jesus, the Early Years. We're looking at the events of our Lord's life before he began his earthly ministry and called his disciples. Today we pick up in the 27th verse of Luke chapter two with the fulfillment of a promise to Simeon. So let's listen in. In verse 27b, when his parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, Simeon that is, and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. There's a fulfillment of a promise here. It's a promise Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount, but it was already true. The promise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And here's a man who is pure in heart. He's devout and dedicated to the Lord and the things that the Lord has for him. And the Lord says, you're not going to die till you see my salvation. You're not going to die until you see the Savior. And he has the privilege of dedicating Jesus to the Lord and to the work of the Lord. And then take note in verse 32, so important, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. You know, the Jews of the first century, they considered Gentiles to be unclean, uncircumcised dogs. And it's one of those things where that's not the whole story. To be like, if you were a Gentile and a Jew called you that, you'd have to say, hey, don't spare my feelings. Tell me what you really think. Because they really looked down on the Gentiles. They would never interact or eat with them, break bread. I mean, they, they wanted nothing to do with them. And here's the irony. From the very beginning, God made it clear that he didn't choose Israel because they were special. They were special because he chose them. And he chose them to be a light to all nations, his ambassadors to the world. And by the way, at this time in history, in this present dispensation, that's our mission. Is he done with Israel? Romans says not. Revelation says not. Jesus says not. James says not. No, God has still got a plan for Israel. He promised, by the way, to regather them to the land. And he's made good on that promise. He promises that later, after they're in the land, he'll open their eyes and they will come back, not just to their land, but to him. But for now, my point in sharing all of this is that we're called to the same mission they were called. And oftentimes the church is guilty of the same sin that derailed them. And that is, we look out at the world that we're supposed to be loving and, and reaching out to and we're like, man, I don't know, they might corrupt me. They're dangerous. They're, they're defiled. They're everything we would be had the Lord not cleansed us and, and, and begun a transformation of us. Listen to God's words to Abraham. It's back in Genesis, he says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, just to be sure we understand, 
Paul, when he writes to the church in Galatia, Galatians 3.16, that ought to be easy to remember. Galatians 3.16 says to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. What's Paul telling us that the prophecy to Abraham that in, would be through his seed, all nations would be blessed, points us to the reality of Jesus, the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. First John tells us Jesus died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. John and John 3 tells, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus that, that uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, so far, what do we see? We have the example of Joseph, who no doubt taught Jesus the word. We're going to see that here even more clearly in a moment, who no doubt taught Jesus a trade. We have the example of Joseph and Mary, who yearly came up to the Passover. We'll read that in a moment. Who who uh, set an example, live for the Lord. We have the example of Simeon. And well, now we're going to get yet another. But first, verse 33, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. As Simeon concludes his prophecy, he prophesies the mixed reception our Lord and Savior would receive. You know the scripture, he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to these he gave power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. Simeon says, listen, the reception would be mixed. Some would fall and some would rise. Those who reject him will fall. Those who receive him will rise. But he says, there'll be a sign which will be spoken of and a sword will pierce through your own soul also that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. That sign it is pointing us to the cross. Why? You should know that the Romans perfected crucifixion. Some say they invented it. We're not sure about that, but they did perfect it. But it was such a horrific, such a brutal, such a shameful, such a torturous death. No Roman citizen could be crucified. I mean, they reserved this only for non-citizens and they reserved it only for the worst of criminals. So what happens? The sign spoken against, the cross that Jesus would bear, the cross where he bled and died for our sins. And you know, it says that, that they mocked the idea that, that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. It just seems so bizarre because only criminals are crucified. Only criminals go to the cross. So it was a sign spoken against. And of course, her her soul pierced as she saw her son, this one who was tempted in all ways, yet without sin, hanging on a cross and crying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Well, we move from Simeon to Anna. Anna, we read in verse 36, was a prophetess. That just means she spoke for the Lord. She could say, thus says the Lord. We know a few other things about her. She's the daughter of Phanuel. She's the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. This woman was a widow of about 84 years 
who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Here's a wonderful example, ladies, of a godly older woman. She's a widow, but apparently not bitter. She's left alone, no children, but apparently, well, filled with anticipation and joy in the work of the Lord. She spends her days fasting and praying. Says she's a prophetess, but most of her time is spent not talking to people, but talking to God on behalf of people. The, the fasting, just denying herself physically so she could pray and, and be in tune spiritually. She's, she's elderly, 84 years, I think we know that's getting up there. And, and she spends her time in fastings and prayers. And, and then coming in that instant, when? When Simeon is dedicating Jesus and, and prophesying over Jesus, she comes in and gives thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. It's interesting. Some spend their entire lives thinking about what they've lost instead of what's left. Some spend their entire lives thinking about what they can't do instead of what God has enabled them and called them to do. Some do nothing because they can't do what they want to do. But here's a woman who's just fasting and praying and she joins now those shepherds and that, well, the shepherds were preaching Jesus from day one, literally. And now 40 days into it all, here we have Anna preaching. The Messiah has come. The Savior is here. The Lord is in our midst. Well, having performed all these things, we read in verse 39, according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth, the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He grew and the grace of God was upon him. Now we get a, a clearer picture of how he was growing at the end of the chapter. So let's just track into this next section. Verse 41 says, His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. How important is that? That means by 12 years old, Jesus had been to 12 Passovers. That's a powerful thing because every year there was this long journey where they worshiped and talked and fellowshiped and, and they came and they sang specific psalms from the, the, the book of Psalms related to God's glory and, and God's deliverance and, and the things that had occurred and the promises that were yet to be fulfilled. So every year they take him up and when he's 12, very important age for the Jewish males. When he was 12, verse 42, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. Now, at 12 years old, a child in the Jewish faith became a man. He was called from this point on a son of the law. And if you think it through, how different things are today and not necessarily at all for the better. In other words, we have childhood and this is described from age 1 to 11 or 0 to 11. And then we have, in his case, manhood. It begins at age 12. He'll be working alongside dad. He'll continue to study. He'll continue to grow in all the ways we're about to read that he grew. But the point is they didn't have this, this gray area of adolescence that starts around 13 and is supposed to end around 19, but for many it's 23 or 33 or 43 or just seems to go on forever. I'm still in school trying to figure it out or I'm not sure and I'm not trying to make fun of anybody who's in that situation. I'm just saying it couldn't have happened then. And there were no malls to hang out in. There were no video games. It wasn't, you know, kids worked. And I'm thinking, hey, this was a pretty good system, you know. Things still went wrong. 
But I really like the way God set things up. And in any case, Jesus is now a man. And he begins to make some decisions. Verse 41, uh, we read he went up with them. Verse 42, it says that he uh, became a man at this point, a child of the law. He was 12 years old. And then verse 43, when they had finished the days as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. Supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey, sought him among the relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Now, here's what's happening as they leave. And if you're thinking, how could parents leave behind a 12 year old and not notice for a whole day? Well, there were hundreds and hundreds of people traveling together and, and it would be easy for Mary and the kids and the other gals to be talking and walking and praying and rejoicing in what they just experienced. Be easy to think Jesus is back there with Joseph and the guys. He's a son of the law now. He's going to want to hang with the men. Joseph is thinking, well, he's probably up there with his mom just talking about how wonderful it is to be this, this stage. And, but in any case, at some point, they, they get together and they're like, hey, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. And uh, so they're a day out. It takes a day to get back. And then they spend a day looking for him. On that third day, we, we read that they found him. Where? In the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, this is important because this will become Jesus' teaching style. And it's, it's so important if you're raising kids that you realize that, that, you know, just sitting them down and telling them how it is or giving them a little mini lecture from the scripture, that's not the same thing as asking them good questions and listening to their response and then guiding them through the next set of questions. We'll see Jesus teaches his disciples this way. We'll see that though his amazing teaching on the Sermon on the Mount was a lecture to many, some of his best teaching happened in the form of questions and answers in situations with people like Nicodemus, where there's the, the hey, Nick, you need to be born again. And Nick's, well, how could that happen? And he's like, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't get these things. And, and he would ask questions and he would give explanations. And the same thing happens as we track with him through his entire ministry. So he's already developing, and that's my point, at 12 years old, a teaching style that's going to be very effective for him. And so if you're tracking dads, you're the priest of your family, you know, your best opportunity to teach is in the everydayness of the experience. You know, you're at the ball game, your kid, you know, strikes out or gets, you know, put on the bench or whatever happens. That's a teaching time and it's a time to come and ask a question and to draw the, the, the lines back to Scripture and what the Lord might be wanting to say. And uh, you'd be surprised at what children will tell you if you just ask them, hey, what do you think the Lord would do in this situation? Or what do you think the Lord would be saying in this situation? You'd be surprised what your kids tell the Sunday school teachers too. If they say, hey, you guys need prayer? Oh yeah, but uh, that's another story altogether. Don't want you to stop bringing them, so I'll just leave it there. Um, anyway, they didn't find him. They return, they find him. He's in the midst of the teachers. He's listening, he's asking questions. And it says, all who heard were astonished at his understanding and answers. 
And this is so important as well. They're astonished because he has insight. He has knowledge. He has wisdom beyond the average 12-year-old, even of his day. And again, I think we expect far too little from our kids. We expect far, far too little from our teens. I mean, when a kid's four, you give him more responsibility than when he's 14, you know? It's like when he's four, they do everything. They empty the dishwasher and they set the table and they help you with the dishes and they help you with the laundry. And when they're 14, it's like, could you just make your bed? And, and uh, but that's, you know, I don't know. I, I, I like what I see here. And I think it's something for us to learn from and, and put into practice. Well, they were astonished at his understanding and answers. And then Mary and Joseph, they, they saw him and they were amazed. And, and his mother said, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. That word means to be grieved or tormented. Of course, three days missing. I mean, they know he's a good kid, but three days missing. And, and so she just says, what, what were you thinking? You know, wh wh why'd you put us through this? And his response, and I don't believe there's any attitude in this. He says, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Some of our translations here say, uh, I must be in my father's house. And, and, and both work because what he's really saying is, I need to be about the things of my father. This is my place, my father's house. This is my business, my father's business. I need to be about his things. And so uh, it's a beautiful picture to us that Jesus knew who he was. He says, she says, your father and I, he says, my father. Well, he knew he was the son of God, obviously, here at 12 years old. He knew where he belonged. He knew what he was called to do, why he came. Later, he'll say, hey, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Well, verses 51 and 2 conclude this short story of the early years of Jesus. And we read, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. This is so important. Why? Because he is the creator of all things, according to John and according to Colossians. All things were created by him and for him. He is the sustainer of all things. In him all things consist. He is the savior of all. And yet, well, he chooses to submit to his earthly parents. Could he possibly be inferior to them? No, he's God the Son. Still, still, uh, yeah, yes, he's a man, but still fully God and fully man. That's the testimony of the early church fathers, and they got it right. Fully God and fully man. And, and so he's, he's in submission because submission is something we voluntarily do. Yes, it's right to do, but you can't get someone to submit. They have to choose to submit it. And we have this wonderful example of our Lord, our Creator, our Savior submitting to his earthly parents. It was great. I had a, I had family in the fr front row and they're like, I think she's about 12. I, I should know. But anyway, it was just perfect because I was able to point at her and say, well, I'm not talking to you specifically just because you're sitting right there. And, but uh, what a wonderful picture of, of submission the Lord gives us. And then we read finally in Jesus increase. The word means to grow or develop or press ahead, to advance in rank or honor or in. And we read four ways that Jesus grew and developed and, and pressed ahead. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. 
He grew in wisdom. That means mentally. And by the way, God's word is the source of all God's knowledge and wisdom. You're not going to find it anywhere else. And knowledge will always trump ignorance. You know that, that saying ignorance is bliss? It's not true. Uh, knowledge trumps ignorance every time. But wisdom trumps knowledge. And, and what I mean by that is you can have a knowledge of the truth and not know how to apply it or fail to apply it. And we're going to see in Jesus' life as we go through, he always knew how to apply it. He amazed them early on and he would continue to amaze them. They would come to him and they'd say, should we pay taxes? And he'd say, show me a coin whose inscription, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. They, they bring a woman who they say is caught in adultery and Moses says, stoner, what do you say? Hey, let you who's without sin cast the first stone. They bring a guy and they let him down. He can't walk and they tear the roof off the house and lower him down in the midst. And, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone in the house starts to, to grumble and there's that rumbling. Whoa, did you hear that? Only God can forgive sin. And he says that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin. I say, rise, take your bed and walk. The point is he continually amazed them with both his words and his works. But he did it and he was, well, he was growing. That's the whole point. He didn't have all wisdom at 12 years old. And no one does. But he was growing and developing in his wisdom, his ability to not only know the scripture, but to apply it. And man, we really need to be growing in that way. And then he grew in stature. That's physically. That requires good nutrition, exercise, rest. Fresh air doesn't hurt if you can get it. But you know, if you have a child and they're not growing physically, you would immediately take them to the doctor. I mean, if two months went by and there was no weight gain and there was no, no change or six months or a year, then you'd be just like, whoa, something's really wrong. And I'd suggest when a Christian isn't growing in wisdom and, and in favor with God and men, then something's wrong. We need to get to the great physician and say, what's up? What am I doing wrong? That third area Jesus grew in, we need to grow our entire lives. He grew in favor with God, that spiritually, and nothing is more important than spiritual growth. And uh, it's, you know, our job, those of us who have those, anyone under us, if you're a parent, it's your job. If you're a Sunday school teacher or a, a minister, if you have a place where you work and there are younger Christians there in the workplace, our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What we don't know is what God's intended for each individual. What we do know is he has a plan to use every individual. So, so how, how much should we be investing in ourselves and in our kids and those who are younger around us, preparing them for whatever it is he's called them to finally in favor with men. That's social growth, mental, physical, spiritual, and social. We mentioned that John the Baptist, not the most social creature. Jesus, very social, but, but social growth here is really talking about something else. It's not talking about enjoying hanging out with people, though, you know, I'm certainly, I'm certain Jesus did and, and we do. No, it's talking about growing in respect for our elders and for authority, that growing in our, our honesty and integrity and our faithfulness, that, that we're maturing. Why? Because you can't hope to raise the next generation with respect for elders and authority if, if we're not showing respect for elders and authority. We can't tell them what they're supposed to do. They need to first see it in us. Even Jesus understood this. So it says of him, these things Jesus began to do and teach. First we model it, then we teach it, then we model it, and then we teach it. 
The principle here is you can't lead where you're not going. You can't give away what you don't possess. You can't help someone else grow unless you're growing. You can't help someone else mature unless you're maturing. So just like Jesus, we need to be increasing in wisdom and stature and favor. As a father of seven children, I love what Sam says about us expecting too little of our young ones. It tends to be a default position because as many times with bigger expectations come, well, frankly, a lot of conflict and headaches. But we need to remember what we're told in Proverbs 22:6, where it says to train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. When we train our children properly, we're not just making our lives as parents go smoother, we're helping bring order to the chaos that can sometimes be in the lives of our children when they become adults. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.